Okay, good afternoon, uh, everybody. Uh, very warm welcome to all of you, and I'm happy to see that so many uh, are here and still coming in. Uh, my name is Dirk Schoenmaker, a senior fellow at Broekel. And at Broekel, uh, we uh, spend more and more time on the interaction between finance and climate policies. And today we are co-organizing with uh, E3G, with Ingrid, and she's done most of the work, and that's why she will also be leading, uh, uh, she will moderate uh, the panel. And we are very pleased that so many of you are com coming. And uh, I've worked for 10 years at the Ministry of Finance, so in the, in the Dutch government, and things really kept going when... Uh, when it gets on the political agenda, and I think the main message of today, and that's why I'm happy with our first speaker also, uh, a pair from Sweden, that it is now really moving onto the political agenda, this issue. Uh, I presented uh, from Broekel something at the informal ECOFIN in, uh, in April on this connection uh, between uh, finance and uh, and, and, and green growth. And so far, most people are still interested from the risk side, financial stability. But I think the real challenge, I hope today, is that we see the opportunities of uh, moving finance uh, uh, to this new era. Now I'm going to stop and hand over to Ingrid. Thank you, Dirk, and um, welcome and thanks for joining us for this high-level discussion on delivering a green capital markets union. Hopefully the jazz music will stop soon. Um, <laughs> so we first started discussing this topic with uh, Bruegel almost a year ago. The Paris Agreement on Climate Change had been delivered and the G20 Green Finance Study Group had been established. A year on, the topic is more timely than ever, given the European Commission's announcement that it will undertake a capital markets union refresh, including establishing an expert group to develop a comprehensive strategy on sustainable finance. The title of the event, Delivering a Green Capital Markets Union, but during the discussion will broaden out, as Dirk said, to focus um, on wider issues around socially responsible investment. Why? Well, much of the drive to tackle market failures around climate change and related environmental damage will involve changes to governance and accountability within capital markets. And this approach can be well applied to addressing social challenges. At E3G, we're increasingly of the opinion that it is by identifying responses to Europe's social and environmental problems and placing them at the heart of the refresh that the Commission can do the most to improve the EU's economic outlook. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers that will help us move forward in our understanding on the sustainable finance agenda. We're going to structure the session so we've got two speakers at the beginning, and then the second half will be a, a panel discussion. And in this first session, we will hear from Minister Per Boland. He's a Swedish Green Party politician and has served as Minister for Financial Markets since 2014. He describes his role as to maintain financial stability in Sweden and ensure steady, long-term economic development. 
His aim is to see Sweden aggressively tackle climate change and he includes consumer affairs in his remit. You have the floor, Minister Voland. Well, thank you so very much. And uh, it's really a great pleasure to be here and to speak to such a knowledgeable audience. Uh, so very much thank you for letting me uh, come here and having a discussion on this very, very important topic. Um, I would uh, very much like to share with you uh, some experiences from uh, Swedish uh, development and the experience on how we try to green our financial markets, what we've done so far and what we're aiming for uh, in the coming years. Uh, I would also like to touch upon my thoughts uh, when it comes to the capital markets union and how we can uh, encourage the development where the capital markets union is united with other uh, goals within the European Union, such as the EU 2020 and the climate agenda. And uh, finally, I would also like to reflect a little bit on the missing pieces of the puzzle and uh, where more analysis and discussion is really warranted. Uh, but if I may, I would like to start to talk about the weather. Uh, that's something that we Swedes uh, very much like to talk about. Uh, it occupies much of our day. And uh, in Sweden, as I notice here in Brussels, we've had a very warm autumn. And uh, many people appreciate that. And we can sit out in our gardens and uh, in our cafeterias and sip in coffee. And it's quite nice. But uh, this has followed a very warm summer. And uh, that followed a very warm spring. And it's quite obvious that 2016 will be uh, the warmest year on record so far. And uh, it followed 2015, which was the previous uh, warmest year on record. So it's quite obvious that something is rapidly changing. And uh, we can see that climate change is not something that is distant or something that we can think about later. It's something that is here and something that is now and it's affecting our societies and it's also affecting our financial markets and the opportunities for growth in the future. So uh, that is something that uh, we have to acknowledge very clearly. And uh, that's why we from, from the Swedish perspective think that it's really important and vital to intensify our work against emissions and try even harder to decrease our emissions as rapidly as it's possible. Um, we know from science and research that uh, there is a clear connection between climate change and elevated costs for society and for asset managers in the future. We have the Stern Report, uh, we have the IPCC, International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's been clearly stated that if we don't uh, halt carbon uh, emissions and climate change, that will be really costly for all of us in the future. And the cost for avoiding it is absolutely much more preferable and a lower cost. So um, that leads us from the Swedish perspective to get a very clear stance. And uh, the ambition of Sweden is clear. Sweden shall be one of the first uh, fossil-free welfare nations in the world, period. And we do that for different reasons. One is that we believe it's the right thing to do. Uh, we have to move ahead, clearly, in order to avoid too much constraint on our societal development. But we also do it because we believe that it is profitable and it's something that will be uh, beneficial to our economy and economic development in the future. Uh, we accomplish this by several different actions. One, of course, is setting the prices right. So uh, having a price on what is polluting the most is key. But we also have to increase the information towards customers and towards investors. And that's something that we're working on very hard. And also uh, incentivizing the sustainable solutions, uh, which we have several different schemes for. 
one example of setting the prices right, of course, is the Swedish carbon tax, which was introduced already in 1991. So we're celebrating 25 years today. And uh, economists in Sweden are celebrating it quite a lot. Uh, citizens of Sweden aren't celebrating it as much. Uh, of course, uh, it's not appreciated when we elevate the carbon tax because it costs more to drive your car. But in the end, there's a widespread appreciation of using economic tools in order to really make the polluters pay in Sweden. And uh, we can also see that at the same time as we have the highest carbon tax in the world uh, on our emissions within Sweden, we also have a very, very vivid economy. Uh, actually, we've had the sixth highest growth rate in the whole of all the nations in the world in the past few uh, months and uh, the last year here. Uh, so uh, it really shows that when the people, some people say that high carbon prices is detrimental to the economy and the economic development, they have quite a hard uh, thing to prove when you look at Sweden. It's actually proven to be the opposite the way around. So actually when we have high prices on carbon and uh, an active climate policy that rather provides us with an um, innovative economy, with a, a clean tech sector that is developing new technological solutions, and as we know that the rest of the world will follow in this development, we are also uh, aware of that this will open up export possibilities for uh, Swedish exporters. So we believe that this is uh, economically uh, the rational thing to do. Uh, after the uh, Paris Agreement, uh, it is also clear that there is a global recognition of uh, the climate uh, agenda and that we need to take new measures to uh, decrease emissions sooner rather than later on a global scale. Uh, or else there will be severe consequences and that is something that the world leaders have noticed and also agreed to, to, uh, to stop. So uh, we've committed to take action to curb carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases on a global level. And um, this commitment will lead to action. That is something that is increasingly clear. We've seen that the Paris Agenda has been adopted by the world's leaders uh, in a very, very rapid timescale. So this will also lead to uh, continued action from policymakers. Uh, for example, setting a price on, uh, on carbon emissions. And I believe that there's also time to uh, look at the European system of emissions trading uh, where we need to raise the bar and, and uh, have higher ambitions within the emission trading system. Um, we've had some difficulties with the Commission uh, explaining to them the virtues of our carbon tax and uh, they've uh, been somewhat unwilling to help us uh, use that as a tool to develop a low carbon economy in Sweden. Uh, for example, they've demanded that we should use the carbon tax also on renewables, which kind of takes away the whole idea of having a carbon tax. So we're trying to discuss it with them, and we hope that they will be uh, more reasonable in the future. Uh, but we also have to look at the emission trading system. Uh, and uh, we now feel from the Swedish perspective that the emission trading system isn't leading us at the right pace to the right targets. We have to do much more. And that's one reason why we're both active, trying to develop uh, more uh, correct carbon pricing on the European level, but also uh, taking measures within the budget. So uh, we've adopted the, an, an emission break in the Swedish uh, budget that we used to uh, buy uh, emissions rights for about 30 million euros uh, and then annul them, take them out of the system. And that is something that we also encourage other countries to adopt this policy and uh, work together with us. And also private enterprises and citizens uh, could do the same. So this, is, in our way, is a way to get the prices right also on the European level. Um, 
getting the prices right and using the tax incentives is, of course, key to deliver the promises that were made in, in Paris last year. But we also need to look at other areas. So a potent uh, environmental policy also must include measures to engage the financial sector. And that's why I'm very happy that this is a theme of, of today's seminar. And uh, I believe that there is a lot happening and uh, a lot of prospects uh, to work even harder in this field. Um, in Sweden, we've had a long tradition of working for sustainable development, and uh, we've also actually written it into the Swedish constitution. And uh, I quote, uh, we say that the public sector shall promote a sustainable development which leads to a healthy environment for present and future generations. So that's really something that is in the basics of Swedish politics. And uh, I'm very uh, happy that there's also a, a growing majority in the political establishment in Sweden uh, that no matter of ideological differences really state that this is something that we have to do together, working together in order to uh, decrease the uh, environmental problems and the, uh, especially the climate problems of the future. So we're at the moment working to enact a climate act in Swedish politics with a very broad consensus in the, Euro in the Swedish parliament, uh, which will give uh, long-term conditions for our industries and for our invest investors in Sweden. So I think that's a very, very good way to work and that could be adopted at the European level as well. Um, Another thing that we presented in last year's budget bill was concerning the financial sector, where we, for the first time, set a goal that the financial sector shall also uh, contribute to a sustainable development. And that is something that both the private actors are now thinking about, how should they work in order to make this happen, but also the authorities in Sweden, for example, the financial inspectorate is at the moment working on a report on how this will be tackled and how they can manage and, and see this uh, through. Uh, we've also had a quite long history when it comes to developing uh, more green instruments and uh, using the financial industry in order to be a lever to a sustainable development. One example that I would like to mention is the green bonds, uh, where Swedish banks were the, actually the ones starting the development of the green bond instrument. And uh, it was uh, SEB, one of the major Swedish banks that started the, the development. And now it's really uh, extremely rapidly uh, evolving market uh, with, uh, well, it's, uh, every time you look over your shoulder, something new has happened. And now it's also gone global. So especially the Chinese is uh, very, very um, eager to use this instrument in order to help them in their transition away from uh, fossil fuel dependence. Uh, we have also worked for a long time with green funds and uh, adopting uh, more sustainable funds on the Swedish fund market. And thanks to the uh, early adoption on the Swedish people uh, when it comes to sustainable development, there's also quite a lot of investors, private investors, that are moving into sustainable fund solutions. So that's something that's also uh, been developing quite rapidly in Sweden. So more concretely, how do we achieve moving towards a more green uh, financial market in Sweden? I would say that the Swedish agenda uh, for a greener financial market has two, uh, two legs, two feet that we are, are working with at the moment. So it's both disclosure and comparability that are our lead words. Um, and to some, this may sound like just uh, drops in the ocean. How can that help to really turn the market around? But I would disagree. I think that these are really important issues to work on. Um, if we want to change the way that, we, um, that climate and environmental risks is perceived within the sector, we must start by defining what we know, but also what we need to know in order to make a transition and also to have um, a knowledgeable and, and uh, well-informed uh, well decisions coming. 
So this is something that we need to, to continue working on. And I believe that with increased knowledge about a financial actor's climate and environmental risk, these types of risks can be both be understood better, but also uh, we can compare between different alternatives uh, when we invest, both as institutional investors or as private investors. And I also believe that this in itself, having comparability, would start a dynamic process where what's get measured gets managed. And uh, we already see that happening in, in parts of the Swedish financial sector. For example, the uh, pension fund AP4 started by measuring their carbon footprint, and they also have worked together with the other AP funds. And now they've moved ahead and moved along uh, further, and they're now starting to exclude uh, the large polluters from their portfolio within each sector. And uh, through this kind of work, they've managed to decrease their carbon footprint, their emissions, by 75% within the portfolio, and at the same time actually uh, not increasing their tracking error at all and uh, not, uh, well, increasing the financial risks. So that shows you an example of how you can work to manage your climate risk without taking uh, unnecessary exposure in other risk areas. Uh, when you look at institutional investors, there is really much happening on a global scale and also in Sweden. Uh, and we think that carbon footprinting is a very good way to start. So uh, we see this as a tool to measure a company's carbon emissions and it's been a way to manage uh, climate risks and to uh, increase the knowledge. And uh, we've identified this as, uh, uh, from the Swedish government side as an area of great importance and also um, of great comparability. We think that the comparability within the carbon footprint is really um, decreased and uh, is not insufficient. So, for that reason, we also encourage the uh, pension funds within Sweden to work in this area and to agree to a set of comparable methods in order to uh, make have, have the same methods in order to uh, increase the comparability of the carbon footprints. And they also managed to agree on a set of indicators on what emissions their assets are actually le leading to. Um, and uh, since these funds uh, represent about 100, 120 billion euros in asset under management, I think that this was also a very important ingredient to get the uh, private institutional investors to, uh, just before the Paris Agreement, to agree on uh, measuring uh, their carbon footprint in a coherent manner. And now we see very rapid development in this area. For example, for example uh, about half of the insti institutional investors' capital uh, are now uh, managed according to the PRI principles. So uh, this is an area that is under rapid evolution. Um, a carbon footprint is quantifiable and therefore is easy to compare uh, between different actors. But um, a carbon footprint does not give you the whole picture of a firm's exposure. And more importantly, it does not tell you about the company's ambition to align uh, your strategy with the, the two degrees goal of the Paris Agreement. Uh, so we think that these are the obvious steps further to move along. We have to look at the carbon emissions today, but you also have to disclose your plan for how to uh, adopt your strategy in order to be in line with the two degree uh, world of tomorrow. So. Um, the issues of, uh, is not only to uh, have information, but you also uh, have to uh, make the information available and you also have to have comparability between different investment alternatives. Uh, and there is a concern that the amount, uh, amount of different standards for reporting on climate and environmental risks uh, over time has swelled to about 400 different schemes. And this means that although uh, there are an increasing number of, uh, of uh, companies that uh, disclose their carbon emissions and their climate impact, uh, 
it would be desirable on a global level to also have uh, not only uh, to have a more coherent standard of reporting so that there will also be increased comparability between. Uh, and we also believe that standards should require information about how firms' long-term uh, strategies look when it comes to, to relating to global climate goals. Um, and for that reason, we also very much uh, are very encouraged by the, uh, the initiative by the uh, Financial Stability Board to create the Climate Disclosure Task Force. Uh, and we believe that was a very, very welcome step forward. Uh, we, although we think that this is only uh, the first step when the uh, task force delivers, delivers its uh, um, report at the end of this year, we have to quickly adopt these, uh, the new information and the suggestions and also make them happen on a global scale. So we need to think how to uh, take these results into action. And uh, a task force that just introduces yet another standard will be a task force that has not really responded to the needs um, and achieved its initial targets of increasing comparability. And hopefully we think that a global standard could visualize the financial relevance related to the environmental risks. And we are looking forward to the final results and we also uh, would like to see it um, used within the financial sector. And that leads me to the uh, Capital Markets Union, uh, because I think that the CMU could have an important role to fill when transitioning to a greener financial system and an economy. Uh, and the work for a sustainable Capital Markets Union is truly important uh, from the Swedish government side, and we think it should be a priority for the European Union as well. And uh, I am very glad to see that reforms for sustainable finance is one of the prioritized areas going forward within the work of the Capital Markets Union. Uh, the CMU could have a decisive role to play when it comes to disclosure uh, and the work being done now by the FSB task force could be propelled uh, to the next level within the capital markets union. And with sound and simple disclosure rules for European companies to follow, investors and board members can make decisions based on transparent and comparable information, which will be truly beneficial uh, for all parties. So therefore I really urge the Commission to analyse the work by the Disclosure Task Force and make sure that investors are given the information that is required to make an informed decision which is in line with the global political consensus when it comes to climate policy. So looking beyond the uh, current initiatives uh, uh, and the CMU, uh, what do we think is missing? And one thing that is somewhat outside the scope of uh, what I so far have discussed is the banking sector, the banking system, and especially its lending operations. And we believe that this is a very important area to continue working with. Uh, a bank's exposure to fossil heavy industries is of interest not just to governments, but also to the investors and the depositors. Within this area, Sweden is aiming for increased transparency within the current legal framework in cooperation with the sector and the authorities. Uh, so we've taken an initiative by the government, uh, had a roundtable discussion with the sector. Uh, we're working also together closely with the FSA of Sweden and the Swedish Bankers Association on this. And um, it seems that they are uh, very interested in having greater transparency within the credit market of Sweden because uh, they see the need uh, to have better dialogue with investors and with their customers. And this is something that many customers are now asking about. So we believe that the, the uh, financial sector is key if there is to be um, uh, increased transparency uh, within the credit markets. And we believe that working in cooperation with the sector is 
a better way in this area than to go through legislation, for example. Uh, within the European Union, uh, businesses still rely on banks for their financing needs. And uh, within the Paris Agreement, uh, when it was signed by 190 countries, I think this is, it is warranted to discuss how to include environmental and climate risks into the lending standards globally. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, the world leaders have truly made a unique commitment to reduce emissions, and that within a relatively short period of time. So this will lead, in my view, to an increased internalization of the cost of greenhouse gas emissions, and this will affect the profitability of the polluters uh, and the polluting businesses. And uh, this, in turn, will most likely uh, increase creditors' risk and credit risks, not least. So banks need to take this into account, and uh, when developing new lending standards, this should be implemented as well. So this is a field where we think that we could have much further work done. Uh, one example uh, where a rapid transition has taken place is the energy markets of Europe, where we see that uh, the high carbon emitters are now paying a very high price for their investments. And there is also a risk of, of stranded investments, uh, stranded assets within the European energy market. Uh, so this is an example of uh, where I think that many of the banks were really caught off guard and uh, hadn't seen this coming. And uh, that's one reason why we think it should be incorporated in the lending policies. On a systemic level, uh, the carbon industry shares some of the features with the housing industry that gave rise to the last uh, financial crisis through the subprime mortgages. And uh, this is something that we also should have focused on in order to avoid the next financial crisis. Uh, for example, their assets are long-lived, uh, they're both capital-intense, and uh, their share of the economy is certainly not negligible, and um, the assets are to a large extent debt-financed. Debt uh, a prudent macroeconomic policy must therefore include this new perspective of climate risk, um, uh, which today may perhaps seem far-fetched to some. And I believe that uh, many here today also have uh, listened to Mark Carney, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, the speech that he made on uh, how to uh, avoid, break the tragedy of the horizons. And uh, Mr. Carney spoke about three distinct risks when it comes to climate change. One is, of course, the direct risks uh, when it comes to environmental effects such as flooding and uh, droughts and uh, heat waves, which will affect the economy, of course. Uh, the other he mentioned was the transition risks, and that's especially the risk of stranded assets. When the world moves away from uh, fossil fuels, for example, uh, due to uh, political policies or to uh, technological development, uh, there is a risk that large investments will be uh, proven to be uh, of much lower value than thought and perhaps even uh, of no value at all. So the assets risk to be stranded. And the thir third risk that he uh, mentioned was the liability risk, uh, which is, of course, that uh, when you look at the uh, tobacco industry, uh, it's obvious that they've uh, had to pay rather high sums in order to, to um, well, pay for the damage that they've caused and also for holding back information on the effects of the products that they sold. And uh, both Mr. Carney and myself think that this is also a risk that could face the fossil industry in the future. And already today we see uh, some examples of uh, cases in the legal system around the world where uh, fossil companies are, um, are actually sued. So that will be an interesting story to uh, follow in the future, I think.
But uh, this shows that there are, of course, considerable risks concerning uh, the fossil fuels in the world and the carbon-intense industries. So, unfortunately, it seems to lie in the very nature of uh, human behavior to tend to underestimate uh, tail risks and to prepare for the crises that have already taken place and not for the next crisis. So that's something we have to work harder on, trying to broaden our focus uh, and also the time perspective of uh, macro prudential policy in order to catch these new developments and uh, perhaps unexpected turns of events as well. Uh, there is a discussion whether there will be a rapid transition to a low carbon economy or a slow and controlled transition. And I think that myself and many others have thought that we would see a controlled and, and slowly evolving development towards a low carbon economy. But now I see more and more signs that uh, perhaps we will have a quite rapid development uh, in the energy market of Europe, as I mentioned, and also of the world are examples of that. Um, We've seen some of the largest coal companies in the world go from being uh, of high profits to uh, going bankrupt in a matter, matter of months. Uh, and uh, when you see that more people are now working in the United States solar industry than in the coal or oil industries, you can actually see that the development is going at a very rapid pace. And this is, of course, something that we have to acknowledge and uh, that the industry also has to see as a potential risk and uh, take into account. And uh, that's the reason why I applaud the initiatives that have been taken, for example, by the Bank of England working with these issues, and also by the European Systemic Risk Board and uh, the Swedish Financial Inspectorate, um, among others, to make the connection between climate risks and financial stability, which I believe is a very, very important topic for the future. Uh, these are all regulators and institutions uh, that have addressed the link between stability and climate change. And I think that we have to work, work further in the future to really have a greater understanding of this link and to be able to avoid uh, the risk of financial crisis in the future caused by climate change or caused by an, a new pricing of carbon emissions. So moving forward, I think that more in-depth analysis must follow in these topics. And one area that we've pointed out in Sweden and that the FSA of Sweden has especially pointed to is carbon stress tests that uh, we are trying to encourage uh, actors to do within Sweden. And I believe that that is something that we should work with on the European level and also on an international level, uh, really trying to see how will the companies and the investors be affected if the carbon price changes dramatically or if there is a more sudden climate impact than we previously thought. So uh, I think that this is really crucial in order to preserve financial stability for the future. Uh, lastly, uh, I would say that Sweden is one of the countries that have taken the initial steps towards greening the financial markets. Uh, I see that France is another state that has done, uh, taken uh, bold decisions. Uh, in my view, the green profile of the CMU proposed in the latest communication uh, from the Commission is very promising. And I hope that we, together with concerted efforts, can propel the topic of sustainability to the top of the Commission's agenda for a capital markets union, because I believe that that is truly where it belongs. And I think, uh, as Dirk also said earlier, that uh, perhaps we've been accustomed to start doing this by looking at the risk perspective, but I think it's more and more important to look at it from a profits perspective as well. If we want a financial market that really delivers profit on the European uh, level, we really need to take these uh, parts of the agenda up to the top of the political field 
So uh, really that the time is right to really use the capital markets union and the development there in order to make the capital markets also adopt a more green agenda in the future. Thank you very much. So we have got um, a little bit of extra time now for um, uh, questions to the minister. I think we have a roaming. Do we have a roaming microphone? Yeah, somewhere. Anyway, I can see a few hands going up. So let's start with you and then moving to you, Mike. With a microphone. Um, Minister, you spoke eloquently about carbon pricing. There are clearly sort of two schools of thought, let's say, the taxers and the sort of cap and traders, and I think you sort of alluded to that, although not mentioning it. Uh, clearly, a tonne of Swedish CO2 is very similar to a tonne of Australian CO2. Taxes are a great way for the early adopters. Could you describe the path you either see or hope for of the evolution towards a global carbon price and on you know what sort of time scale if we do it well thank you well thank you very much uh, thank you for very important uh, questions um, I believe that the uh, car industry is uh, developing uh, the technologies uh, that could be a solution for uh, the obstacles and the the risk that we are facing uh, on the other hand, uh, I am a bit critical about the pace that they're introducing these technologies and uh, there is, uh, in my view, too much of a lag behind. Uh, there's not enough to just have uh, cars within your, your portfolio, so to speak, that uh, are sustainable or, or more sustainable, but you also have to make an effort to actually make them accessible to the market and to deliver them to the, the population. Uh, in my view, I think that the transportation industry is the next industry that will follow in the energy sector, uh, having a rapid transition, uh, both because we see new actors taking uh, market shares and uh, there are uh, revolutionizing the, the industry, uh, but also because we see new um, consumption patterns within the transportation industry that could really be uh, uh, make the transition much more rapid than I think has been previously thought. Um, we look at you know, the sharing economy, for example, we see uh, carpools developing uh, at a very rapid pace uh, around the world, and I think we've just seen the start so far. And also, um, well, multiple modes of transportation where you can actually choose the appropriate mode for the, exactly the time and the transport that you need at the moment is something that will uh, revolutionize the transportation industry. And of course, this is used through, through uh, the digitalization and the accessibility of information in the palm of your hand. So I think that, uh, I think there's a great risk that the transportation industry, the car industry, will be uh, caught off guard uh, in this development and, and hasn't really seen the uh, transition that we're 
moving in at the moment. So uh, hopefully they will use the te technological solutions to also provide what the customers are actually uh, demanding and, uh, and don't really see that happening at the moment. So um, when it comes to carbon pricing, uh, it is encouraging that uh, more and more uh, economists and more and more uh, well evaluators are seeing that there is no um, well trade-off between having a carbon price and having a vivid economy. Uh, I mentioned Sweden as an example of that, but I think you can have many others as well. Uh, and I think that this is also what leads to a development on a global scale, where more and more regions, more and more countries are introducing carbon prices in different schemes, either through taxes or through um, emission trading schemes. Uh, the last figure I saw from the World Bank is that 12% of the emissions on, on a global scale is priced at the moment. But now we see uh, China introducing emission schemes in the uh, emission trading schemes in uh, next year. And uh, Mexico and many other countries are working on these kinds of schemes. So I think that that number will increase rapidly. And when more and more regions are introducing carbon schemes, carbon uh, pricing, of course, it's much easier to see also uh, a global agreement on carbon uh, pricing. So my, my um, uh, prognosis is that there will be a, a bottom-up approach. There will be more and more regions and countries introducing carbon pricing, and that will make it possible for uh, well, a discussion and an agreement on the United Nations level to also introduce it as a, on a global scale. But it will never happen if we try to introduce it from the top down uh, first, in my view. <laughs> exactly. together um, for the different banks to start to think about uh, green finance. Um, you mentioned a lot to do with the um, risk and disclosure side of green finance. And I think the other element that um, we as a firm see is equally important is the enormous um, financing challenge. The sort of new climate economy or the G20 have put it at 90 trillion of sort of new investment over the next 15 years. Obviously, that's a global figure and a large um, proportion of that is going to go to the emerging markets. But one of the main asset classes within that is, is um, um, infrastructure. Um, the, uh, when I look at green finance within Europe, I see it as a sort of interface between the capital markets union, between the infrastructure investment plan, between the energy union and the broader kind of COP21 objectives. Greening the CMU is kind of part of that, but I want to get your views on in terms of how we actually ensure that there's more and better link up between the different um, sort of um, regional <coughs> um, work streams to ensure that actually, you know, CMU, yes, disclosure, but actually financing, markets-based financing, and the link to um, infrastructure and the COP21 objectives is done. 
Well, thank you very much. Um, well, of course, as I mentioned in my speech, I'm very hopeful that the Council will uh, present uh, legislation and uh, take the work further from the, uh, from the Climate Disclosure Task Force. Uh, so that will be a very, very uh, good development, if you, if you ask me. Uh, and I believe that there is uh, um, an interest from the Member States as well. Um, Especially, I think that there are uh, some member states that have a very uh, large uh, financial sector. Sweden is one of them. Um, but I believe that those sectors, those, those states that are uh, heavily involved within the financial sector, are also very much on board on this agenda. So, um, Great Britain, for example, uh, has been pushing it. Unfortunately, they were probably not be there to take the decision uh, in the Council. Uh, but also France, uh, as I mentioned, has moved ahead uh, quite rapidly and I believe that they also could contribute in this development. And uh, I also think that Germany uh, has the potential to, to uh, work even further with this and also see the, the uh, value of, of having a greener financial uh, sector. And I believe that if these key states work together and uh, try to, to also have a discussion within the uh, framework of the ECOFIN, I think that could lead to uh, a clear majority of member states. And I don't see any member states that really um, are, are the losers of such a policy and that risk to, to lose out uh, clearly. So I think that the, I don't see very much opposition coming, uh, although uh, sometimes you're surprised by the development in the European uh, policy framework. So you have no guarantees, but I think that it, it would be adopted by the by the council as well. Um, well, uh, the investment needs, of course, are huge. Um, although the investment needs, even if we do nothing, are also huge. So just keeping what we already have in place really takes a lot of investments. And the extra investment that is needed in order to move to a low carbon economy isn't really that dramatic. So uh, we have to really work to, to make the investments in the uh, infrastructure sector, for example, uh, move in the direction of, of a low carbon economy, investing in what is parts of the solution to uh, a future um, green economy. Um, and I believe that uh, we, there are so, so big in investment needs that we have to broaden our scope when it comes to the different investment schemes and find new ways to, to attract investments uh, also to the uh, infrastructure uh, side. So uh, this, that's a discussion we're having in, in Sweden at the moment. Uh, for example, um, uh, we've, uh, we have had a policy that uh, the uh, investments in infrastructure is made only by the government and it's, uh, is funded with, with taxes. But now there is discussion whether we should uh, broaden that scheme so that other investors could enter into the field. For example, the, the pension funds, um, which find it hard to get enough um, um, well, um, profits from, from traditional investments and especially uh, from uh, having uh, to have a lot of, of government bonds, for example, which is uh, quite low yielding at the moment. So they are looking for new investment opportunities. And of course, that's something that we listen to from the Swedish government as well. And I believe that this is a discussion going on in, in many other countries in the European Union as well. So um, I believe that we could, we could link the, uh, the needs of the, um, the financial sector to the needs that we see in the uh, infrastructure um, area as well. And it would be beneficial for, for both sides, so to speak. Wonderful. We need to leave the questions there now, Minister. Um, thank you very much. And I'm going to ask Philip Zouarty, CEO of Morova, to give his um, speech. 
Philippe is a leading light in the responsible investment world. Moreva currently manages around 5.8 billion across equities, fixed income, infrastructure and impact investing. So over to you, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ingrid. Thank you, Dirk. Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Very happy to be, to be here today. And uh, I would like to, uh, to thank Bruegel and uh, E3G for, for this invitation. So today, today I, I would like to, to address the issue of the uh, opportunities, risks, and challenges that arise from this objective, which is to uh, invest for a sustainable society. Uh, I mean, this is, of course, uh, the most important issue, the core issue of uh, our business at, at Mirova. Uh, Mirova is an asset management company fully dedicated to responsible investment and uh, it was created uh, three years ago uh, on the basis of one assumption uh, which was that we need to shift the uh, investment chain toward responsible and long-term value creation. Our ambition is uh, that economic, social and environmental sustainability are produced as an outcome of our investment management process. But of course, the issue extends well beyond uh, Mirova perspective, uh, since uh, investing for a sustainable society is uh, becoming more and more the central concern of, I mean, the entire financial system. So I would also like to address this issue through a broader perspective, uh, which is in light of the recent project that the Financial Forum uh, uh, of Paris, which is called Paris Europlace, has conducted to foster Paris' contribution to green and sustainable infrastructure. The first question maybe to, uh, to address is to uh, understand and define the challenges itself. What does investing in a sustainable society mean? First thing to agree upon is a scope. So uh, as you mentioned, I mean, in a recent speech given by, uh, at the Archer Burns Memorial Lecture by uh, um, Governor Bank, the, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, Mark Carney recalled that the Paris Agreement has brought forward the horizon and clarifying and stretching the objectives to combat climate change. The, this shift alone, I mean, climate change, uh, is immense and uh, you all have in mind, I mean, all uh, its implications. But yet, the issues of climate change and energy transition alone do not encompass the entirety of the sustainability challenge. Another milestone that uh, you know very well was adopted in uh, 2015 when uh, the 17 United States Sustainable Development Goals uh, were uh, adopted in, uh, in New York. So reducing uh, social inequalities and managing natural capital, for example, are other relevant priorities and the next frontier that will need to be considered by the financial system. So we need to rethink really how capital is allocated uh, in order to support employment, in order to eradicate poverty, in order to facilitate environmental, social, and technological innovations, as well as, of course, to build new, more, inf more sustainable infrastructures and finance the energy transitions. So this makes, of course, the challenge even greater. And it is so broad that in order to tackle it, we maybe must focus our energy on something. So does it mean that we should limit ourselves to the challenge of climate change? I don't believe so. Today, because of the climate emergency, because of the COP21 and so on, uh, climate and green finance are at the top of the agenda, but other environmental and social challenges are increasingly hot topics that need to be addressed. So although green finance is still at, let's say, uh, its infancy, 
climate is certainly the most mature environmental issue which is currently addressed by the financial sector. So what we think is green, and especially climate finance, should pave the way for further developments in sustainable finance in, in general. Another aspect of the challenge uh, after the scope is now to understand its nature. What does it consist of? What is required of the part, uh, on the part of the financial sector to invest sustainably in sustainability? The, the, the first and um, perhaps the most striking aspect of that is uh, that it requires an immense amount of money. Uh, I mean, also there is not a single estimate of global funding needs for a green and sustainable growth, and also it's not all additional money, uh, as you said. Uh, various international reference institutions, uh, I mean, such as uh, the uh, International Energy Agency, the OECD, the World Economic Forum, they have delivered preliminary estimates demonstrating the needs to deploy tens of thousands of billions of euros in the coming decades to finance green projects, particularly in the fields of construction, energy, water, uh, and waste infrastructure. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, uh, for example, estimated the investment requirements for the SDGs, uh, for the SDGs implementation at an amount between five and seven trillion dollars per year. Uh, if you look at the uh, uh, um, International Energy Agency, uh, for them, they said that no, no less than 45 trillion of uh, dollars of investments will be needed in total if uh, we want to achieve the goal of the Paris Agreement to limit global warming under the two degrees. So uh, we need a lot of money, but raising money uh, is not the only issue. We also need new financial tools that enable investors to make sure that they, their financial input is really oriented towards the creation of environmental and social benefits. This means developing new definitions, new processes that track the allocation of capital to dedicated projects, green bonds is an example of course, and new reporting tools capable of assessing and quantifying the impact of sustainable development. All these challenges should be uh, manageable for the financial system. Money is there. Uh, the financial sector has always proven uh, its uh, ability uh, to, uh, to be extremely uh, creative uh, uh, in the invention of new financial tools, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Uh, but also, more and more investors are willing to invest in a meaningful projects with positive impacts. However, to put it bluntly, we are not there yet. Uh, much more is needed to make this shift happen. Uh, the large-scale involvement of the financial sector is in and for itself the challenge. Despite growing commitments to finance sustainability, uh, the synthesis report of the G20 notes that only a small fraction of bank lending is explicitly described as, as green according to national definitions. Less than 1% of the bonds worldwide are labeled green, and less than 1% of the assets of global institutional investors are active green infrastructures. So the potential to expand the scope of green finance is therefore really very substantial. Beyond the volume issue, uh, Innovation in green and sustainable finance has so far remained limited, interesting, important, but limited. Uh, the market today remains 
primarily dominated by green bonds issued by major public issuers, public investment bonds, investment banks, large companies. So we need more than that, the creation of new products geared towards financing green initiatives such as green loans, green equities, green project bonds, and fostering long-term investments are therefore major development axes that we need to, to fulfill. One of the reasons for, for this uh, is that we need to establish new and strong collaborations among, among stakeholders if we want to achieve that, to invent new ways to finance the transition to a sustainable society. Scaling up green finance is a collaborative, definitely a collaborative challenge. First and for, foremost, of course, uh, between the, the financial players and the public sector, but also with other stakeholders from the civil society. So before examining how collaboration could, could foster innovative solutions, I would like to comment briefly on why we, we need this collaboration. Uh, the primary reason for which stems from the specificities of the green finance, uh, and its inherent complexity. Look at the financial markets. Financial markets have been characterized since uh, the 70s by uh, an increasing uh, harmony. <laughs> uh, financial markets have been characterized since the 70s um, by an increasing harmonization, procedures, and accounting standards with the objective to, to promote the liquidity and the fungibility of capital markets. But the problem is that the, the characteristics of green and sustainable finance do not fit easily uh, into this setting. Uh, the integration of env environmental and social factors in the framework of uh, existing framework of, of these markets is a new and still little explored field for market players as well for, regulate, for regulators, indeed. Uh, green and sustainable finance present specific challenges. Uh, coming back to, uh, to the, the synthesis report of the G20, the GFSG, Green Finance Study Group, um, this, the GSFG listed five categories of uh, challenges for green finance that I would like to, to summarize, uh, summarize very briefly. First one is very classical uh, challenge of uh, environmental economics is uh, the integration of positive and negative externalities into the economic reasoning of market players. And uh, the, the, the way to do it is, of course, assigning a suitable price to these externalities. So setting, uh, of course, we have just mentioned that uh, an appropriate carbon price is often seen as a silver bullet policy uh, by market players and, and, and regulators to foster low carbon investment in green or sustainable assets. But I think other substantive challenge, challenges require uh, attention for. Uh, another second barrier to investment uh, orientation uh, is linked to the difficulty for investors, banks, and companies to clearly identify what constitutes a green or a sustainable asset. What technologies, what products fall into that category? In most countries and markets, the definitions in this area remain heterogeneous and incomplete. As noted in the report of the GSFG again, single definitions suffer from the danger of not adequately reflect, uh, reflecting different contexts uh, and priorities in different countries or, or markets or areas. On the other hand, too many definitions 
which finally each firm defining green assets by itself could also make it very costly for a comparison across institutions and markets and for cross-border green investments. A third challenge is the lack of appropriate disclosure of environmental information by companies, uh, which increases, increases the, the surge cost for green assets and thereby reduces, reduces their attractiveness for investors. Furthermore, due to the complexity of, uh, of uh, and varied, nat varied nature of environmental and social issues, uh, measurement indicators, I mean, retain many imperfections and, and remain important field of research. For instance, to assess, let's say, the impact of a company's business uh, model on biodiversity, on social development, and so, and so on and so forth. The fourth challenge is inadequate analytical capacity. Even when information is available, understanding the financial implications as associated with uh, environmental, environmental risk is still at an early stage of development. The ability of banks and financial institutions to identify and quantify credit or market risks need to be further developed. And finally, the fifth challenge is not specific to green finance, but it's common to assets with long-term maturities. And it is, I mean, this uh, tragedy of horizon, the maturity mismatch, which is a difficulty of investing in long-term maturities due to, to the uh, inadequate supply of long-term funding and the preference, of course, of most investors and banks for short-term maturities and for liquidity. So the financing of long-term green infrastructure, for example, is particularly impacted by, 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 by this fifth challenge. So these specific challenges make uh, the development of green and sustainable finance particularly dependent on market regulation. Market regulators and players therefore have to provide answers on a variety of levels in order to tackle it. First one is standardization. Standardization is essential in order to send the right information and the right signals to financial players. Few things uh, about standardization. The first one is, of course, the definition of green and sustainable. Second one is the standardization of processes, ensuring the environmental quality of financial products. I mean, for example, the standardization of the use of proceeds for green bonds. And third one is uh, on environmental related financial disclosure. On this last point, of course, the uh, current work of the TCFD, but also the guidelines that are to be uh, published by the European Commission on non-financial uh, information disclosure are of tremendous importance for investors. As in other markets, the definition of standards also raises the question of governance. Uh, through the distribution of roles between the market and its regulators in order to provide commonly accepted and recognized standard. We think, uh, and many uh, also players in the, in the French market uh, in our survey, that if good practices can first be developed within the market itself, publicly endorsed standards will be subsequently necessary to guarantee the quality and integrity of the market on the long, on the long term. So, standardization is the first, first point. Second one is incentives. Uh, in addition to appropriate information, investors require a robust pipeline of sustainable projects. We need to invest in something. 
So improving the risk-return ratio of climate projects is, of course, a prerequisite uh, to make these projects bankable and financially attractive. The focus of the policy, public policy today is, let's say, about structuring policies that ensure the emergence of a carbon price and the development of an adequate supply of robust investment projects. This is a good start. However, uh, we maybe need also some specific incentive in uh, the financial system itself. Uh, support for project development has not proven sufficient yet to generate a, a scalable flow of sustainable investments. So uh, ad additional public intervention may be necessary to compensate for uh, market failures through maybe more direct incentives. Different tools have already been used or discussed with public uh, or by public regulators with different levels of success. Let's uh, just mention uh, direct subsidies, tax incentives, uh, different ways to look to prudential ratios, uh, and, and so on and, and so forth. So to develop uh, satisfactorily, uh, the, the green and finance uh, sustainable uh, markets require fine-tuning policies on the part of regulators and market authorities in order to avoid several pitfalls uh, that could hinder the market's development. The first risk to consider is insufficient action on the part of regulators. The absence of uh, sufficiently defined and rigorous standards could generate a risk for, for the integrity of the market. Green financing products could ultimately uh, create mistrust on the part of investors for fear of greenwashing, for example, and even lead to a dilution of the market in the future. A lack of appropriate incentives could have the same consequences. It may also create a risk of non-alignment of interests, even in conditions where market integrity will, would be guaranteed, uh, its development could remain insufficient and confined to a niche uh, if access to green funding is more expanding for the issuer or less profitable for investors that conventional product, conventional finance. Conversely, other risks could stem from a too rapid or excessive regulatory action. The transition risk, uh, I mean, often pointed by uh, Mark Carney, uh, could destabilize the financial sector as a whole in case of a too rapid transition. The risk of creating a bubble is also to be taken into consideration, which can occur when incentives are too strong or badly proportioned temporarily, as it has been uh, the case in, in the past, for example, for the development of some renewable energies. So finally, too much regulation can raise transaction costs, uh, transaction costs also uh, by uh, too heavy standardization. So in practice, what do we observe? So far, regulators' actions have remained limited and focused mainly on support for project development and disclosure standards. Today, we observe a tension on the emerging finance, uh, I would say between the need for integrity on one, on one hand and the need for more financial volume on, an, on the other hand. The temptation to develop the volume of green financing without also developing quality standards clearly confirms the risks to the integrity uh, of, of the market. So I, as I have only two minutes, I will go to my, to, to my last part in my conclusion. In, face, in the face of these opportunities and challenges, 
One of the main conclusions of the projects undertaken uh, by a work working group at uh, Paris Our Place is that solutions facilitating the integration of sustainability into our capital markets will stem for increased collaboration between private financial players and other stakeholders. First and foremost, we need more collaboration at the regulatory level with public authorities. And I think we have good example of that uh, in France, for example, with the collaboration of the players and, uh, and, 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 the, and the government and the public, public body. The capital markets unions plan, action plan, is in our view a major opportunity that we must size to foster green finance on a European scale. The creation of a green finance expert group to help the Commission to define a green finance strategy in relation with the establishment of the capital markets union is a first step in the right direction in a low investment context in which growth is limited and unemployment abounds, Europe should harness the potential for green growth associated with the need to finance the transition to a sustainable society. Green and sustainable finance should become a strategic priority of the CMU action plan. Maybe just one thing to add is that the financial sector also needs to learn to work with uh, new partners and reciprocally. Civil society has a crucial role to play not to suspect finance, but rather to help guarantee the integrity and positive impact of integrated green factors into financial mechanism. Financing sustainability is an immense challenge, but it is also the most meaningful, meaningful way for finance to fulfill its role of supporting social needs. I hope that uh, our time together today will lead to active collaboration and contributions towards building a strong case and an ambitious agenda for the development of green and sustainable finance at a European level. Thank you very much. So thank you, Philippe. We're going to weave your questions into the general panel discussion. You're going to stay up here. And Per is, um, unfortunately, has to leave us now. You're going to a European consumer summit. But um, please join me in thanking him one more time for, for being here today. And as Pear leaves, we will be joined by um, our other panellists. Would you like to come and join us up at the front now? I'm just going to... So we're going to move into the panel discussion um, now. I won't spend a lot of time introducing people. There should be copies of biographies um, around, and I'd encourage you to, um, to, to check those out. But we've got a mixture of investors and think tanks and regulators and also, of course, the commission represented. So hopefully we can start to get a little bit into the substance of um, what should we do around the, the reform agenda. I'm going to ask you, Henrik, to kick off. Um, so Henrik is um, from the Swedish financial regulator. Can you tell us a bit about your journey um, as a regulator into the world of climate change risk? What prompted it and what do you conclude about the role of financial regulators in this, this debate and space? 
Okay, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, well, I think, as Per sort of alluded to, I'm, I'm, I'm the chief economist of the Swedish FSA. Um, as Per alluded to, the issues related to, to greening the Swedish economy has sort of been around for, for a long time. Um, I mean, uh, talking about the AP funds, for example, they had sort of a, a, a mandate to work in, in a greener direction for more than 10 years. So from that perspective, it, things have been moving for a long time. Now, what happened in, for us as a regulator was that roughly half, one and a half year ago, we were asked by, by the government to look into the issue of, of um, climate change and the financial system. And the way we has approached the problem is really to look at sort of these things from two different perspectives. We started with, with what I think is the easiest step, which is to sort of look at climate change and how it affects our financial system. That is sort of the first leg that we sort of covered this, this spring. Uh, and now we're dealing with sort of the second step, which is really to see how the financial system and especially financial regulation, how that can affect our abilities to achieve our, our climate change uh, or our environmental targets. Um, and I think as, as, as a financial regulator, you are, in some sense, you are a bit, um, well, when you're, you're sort of meeting these, these slightly new challenges, you are a bit thinking about how, how should we approach this problem. I mean, we're basically responsible for pursuing financial stability, consumer protection, and ensuring that financial markets are well-functioning. That is, we're here to ensure that the system is sufficiently resilient and we have pro proper incentives for, for firms in the system. So how would these sort of new tasks or these new assignments fit into our, to our framework in that respect? And I think one, one sort of tentative conclusion we have is, is they actually fit quite well. If you talk about, I mean, the three kinds of risks that Carney, for example, had mentioned, climate risk, well, that is, if you look at insurance companies, they always dealt with, with disasters. We need to prepare ourselves for much worse disasters and much more frequent disasters. But we are, in some sense, have been in that game for a long time. Transition risk, well, in many respects, that's quite similar to what financial firms and the market economy always has to deal with. Technological change, sometimes it's slow, if we're lucky, as Per referred to. Sometimes it goes very fast. And that's also something we have to, we are quite accustomed to dealing with. Finally, litigation risk. Um, I think you just have to, to go to Frankfurt or New York and ask Deutsche Bank, is that a new thing? Well, actually not. In the financial sector, we've been, we've been dealing with that already. It may be on a different scale, it may be a different source, but the risks uh, have been around there. So from that perspective, I would say uh, it's not a fundamentally different game, but what's fundamentally different, at least if you look at it from a financial uh, stability perspective, is that we need to get a grip on the magnitudes of these risks, because these risks have not always been well measured in, in, in the sectors, and neither from our, our perspective as, as a regulator. And I think that's really where, where we came into this, this work, to try to measure these kinds of risks and see if they did pose a significant threat to financial stability in Sweden. Uh, and to give, give a sort of very brief a uh, short reply to that. What we found was not an absolute answer. It, it, there are major risks, yes. They are 
smaller in Sweden than in virtually any other country actually in, in, in the Western world for a number of reasons. Partly because, as per, per mentioned earlier, environmental policies have been sound for a very long time. So we sort of shifted out of, of a lot of, of, of the most risky businesses in terms of oil, coal, etc. quite early on. Uh, we're also lucky in the sense that we have, we're in a part of the world which, which will be less affected by climate change uh, for, for geographical reasons. Um, and finally, we also were lucky in the sense that our energy sector and our in industrial base is not very strongly uh, geared towards uh, these kinds of, of sectors. So compared to many other countries, things looked decent. That was our conclusion from in the report in the spring. Still, there is a lot of uncertainty. Data is fragmented. So what we uh, basically told the sector is that we expect you to start to work on stress scenarios climate change stress scenario, transitional scenarios in a few years' time. And if you don't, well, maybe we, we will have to come back and, and, and help you with it. But it's probably better that you start initially. And um, we're still waiting for a very sort of strong and coherent response from the sector, I would say. Thank you. Great. And Tom, do you want to put the, yeah. Um, so you meant, we've, we've had quite a bit of mention today, um, Henrik, about the responsibilities between the regulator and the government and the use of incentives and so on. Where do you, are you starting to feel that this line of responsibility lies? And, and following from that, why can't we just expect financial actors to, to shift capital from brown to, to green? I think that sort of came fairly clearly out of, of today's discussion, that, that um, there need to be sufficient incentives for a large-scale shift towards uh, from brown to green. And I think most economists would agree that governments have to provide the overarching incentives in that respect for dealing with, with climate change. And, and, and there is a lot of things going on, but coverage in terms of, of carbon taxation is low, although it's going up. And on average, carbon taxes or equivalent measures are not nearly high enough to actually achieve uh, this transformation. Now, of course, finance can do a bit of that in itself. But there, I think there are three main reasons why we can't expect finance, the financial sector, to be a strong substitute without any help from price mechanisms. I think the first one is that it's too far from the, from the sort of initial market failure to be able to deal with this eff efficiently. The initial failure is pricing of, of, of greenhouse gases. Uh, it may be too information intensive as well. Uh, Philippe alluded to that, and of course we can, we can do a lot of work on that, and I think that is something that we need to do, get a much better, better grip on, 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 uh, on the impact of different kinds of investment strategies. And thirdly, and that also I think very much fits into this discussion about the Green Capital Market Union, at least on a national level, if you look at me as a national regulator, Financial regulation will be too porous. I mean, it will, the financial sector is too integrated, within Europe especially, to actually be able to, 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 to do the heavy lifting here. Of course, if we work together within a European framework, then we have a much sort of less, less slippage to other countries. But I think these are the three reasons that we can't do everything with, with financial regulations. Having said that, combining 
climate change measures together with financial regulation is the way forward. And here I think that we can do a lot of things once that is in place. Uh, it was referred to earlier the tragedy of the horizon. We have this hope, at least, I think, that governments would be better to deal with that than, than the private sector, even though uh, you may have second thoughts about that, given the sort of fiscal situations we've seen in many countries in Europe. We've been very good at spending, mm -hmm. yes, today, tomorrow's money already. Uh, but in principle, governments should be able to help with that. Uh, and it's been mentioned several times today, we need well-working, efficient, well-informed financial markets to make the transition possible. There will be a lot of investment that needs to be done, a lot of disinvestment that needs to be done. And if we have well-functioning European financial markets, that will make this transition smoother, cheaper, and faster. Uh, finally, I also think, I mean, as, as a sort of regulator, I'm into consumer protection as well. And I think consumers, final consumers, could play a role here as well in the sense that well-informed consumers that want to bet on a better world tomorrow should have the incentives and possibilities to do that. And therefore, we need to make sure that disclosure is to the point for consumers to help them take the best decisions. Moving to France, Jean. Um, France is further ahead than any other member states, arguably, on green finance around the regulatory uh, agenda with the introduction of Article 173. Um, how have you been responding to this and what do you see the main challenges and opportunities around greening the finance agenda? And just adding to that, um, given that you need, now do have this regulation in place, are you seeing a change in attitude amongst the firms that you regulate to climate risk? <coughs> Thanks, Ingrid. Um, well, we, we may be uh, uh, one step ahead of, uh, of the others, but I'm definitely feeling the, uh, the breath uh, <laughs> right on my neck, and I'm very happy for, for that. Um, uh, maybe, um, I mean, a lot of things have, have already been uh, said, uh, but maybe the, the starting point on our side uh, was um, uh, very much to bring uh, more climate into finance and more finance into into the climate discussion, and uh, and that was part of uh, of a, a national domestic journey, and it was also part of the uh, the work that we've done in the context of the of preparing for for the COP21. Um, but if I if I may, I've heard a lot of of things, uh, most of them, if not uh, all of them, I would agree with uh, today. But I'd like to introduce a slight distinction that I I think. Uh, is uh, very useful to try to design a, a policy agenda around this, uh, this idea. Um, basically, we started um, a few years ago uh, from a question that was, uh, is there any problems with financing the, the low-carbon transition? And uh, in, in working on these questions, um, we started with the, with the obvious, uh, the obvious um, uh, starting points, uh, the financing of green investment. And, and this is something I would call green finance. It's, it's, uh, it's rather easy to understand. It's, it's financing wind farms, it's financing uh, PV and, and, and so on. And it has some, some challenges and, and some of them we've already mentioned. Uh, uh, how do you ensure that the, the policy support that you're providing to, to the projects, for example, is, is better accounted, is um, rightly taken into account by the, by the financing uh, partners and, and so on. 
and it's leading to uh, a series of um, of things like green bonds, like um, infrastructure financing. I was I was uh, mentioning. Uh, also, green tech. I think we, we should not forget that a lot of the technologies that we need for the for the transition are still technologies that are not yet uh, deployed uh, on on an industrial um, level. Um, so this is the the easier part. Many things to be to to do in that uh, in that respect. Things around ensuring that uh, public finance and private finance work well together and and, and so on. But it's not. Uh, it's clearly not the the end of uh, of the game. And, and if you look at the transition, it's not just an extra layer of, in, of green investment that you should be putting, uh, putting on top of everything. It's a whole transformation of, the, uh, of, of our economies and, and a reorientation of the investment uh, pipeline and therefore re a reallocation of capital. So green finance is not the kind of, I mean, niche business that you would, you would get if it's just the, the financing of green investment. Well, niche, but for a, a few tens of, uh, of billions of euros still, but, but still niche. I mean, that's, that would not be a mainstream question if, if, you, if it were uh, just that. Uh, it's, it's also um, a matter of uh, reallocating capital and ensuring that climate is properly taken into account in many, many, many other uh, credit decisions, investment decisions, and, and, and so on, even for things that uh, would not be obviously uh, um, uh, linked to uh, to, to climate, for example. I mean, when, you're, when an, an SME is um, re-engineering its, uh, its, uh, its plant, it needs to, to think through questions about energy efficiency, uh, energy prices, and, and so on. And that's something that the financial sector can play a role, uh, a role in. And, and this is something that, that is for, uh, certainly for everybody in the, financial, in the financial sector, and something that I would call um, climate-consistent finance. Um, and, and an agenda would work on, the, on these two legs. Uh, green finance, uh, it's the obvious part, uh, but it's also climate-consistent finance, and it's for, it's for, uh, it's for everybody. And uh, when we came to develop some, some policies around, around that, and maybe you, you've heard of Article 173 in the, in the Energy Transition Act in, in France, uh, we basically uh, looked at the, this climate-consistent uh, finance challenge, uh, and it was a comprehensive piece of, of legislation uh, in the sense that uh, we, we saw that uh, first, uh, maybe the financial sector didn't have all the information uh, they needed to have in order to, to, to be making the right decisions. So there was a, a data gap we've tried to, to address through uh, corporates, corporates disclosure requirements uh, around their, let's say, the most material part of, the, of their scope three, uh, around the way they are uh, taking into account climate change in their, in their risk policy and, and, and so on. And that's very much something that the FSB is currently working, working on through the, the TCFD. And there is another leg of, of that uh, in, in that challenge. Uh, it's also to ensure that when provided with the right information, the financial sector is actually looking at that information and making something about, uh, about it. And that's where you you get uh, the, um, the the provisions that uh, apply that are applicable to asset managers and, and institutional investors, but it's also something we're currently working on. I mean, in the very same way that uh, the, the Swedish uh, uh, supervisor is looking at uh, in terms of how to assess climate-related risk in the in the banking sector, for example. 
so this is to take care of, uh, of uh, a, knowledge, a knowledge gap. The first one is a data gap. The, the second one is more of a knowledge gap and an appropriation gap. And that's where we, we've, been, uh, we've been pushing hard. Uh, as uh, uh, Enric mentioned, it's, it's nothing in that is new, actually. Uh, but what is needed is a, a good translation of what people know in, the, in climate science and, and so on uh, into something that, that is uh, actionable from a, from a, a financial sector um, uh, perspective. Um, maybe I won't have time to explain to you in great details what is in the Article 173, but very happy to, to do so uh, later on. Uh, and regarding the, the change in, in attitude that, uh, that you were uh, wondering, I think definitely uh, there's something happening. Uh, when, we, when I was starting to speak about these questions with, uh, with uh, investors and, and, and bankers and so on, three years ago, uh, oh my God, I was uh, feeling like uh, an extraterrest. Uh, <laughs> and, and at some point I even question whether I was uh, I had all my mind or, or whether it was something I was completely uh, completely uh, stupid uh, but but no there is there is many many things uh, uh, changing um, I think from a financial sector perspective there are three big drivers that are starting to to get people um, uh, more engage, engaging more on, on these issues the first one is obviously uh, uh, their reputation risks I mean when climate is is uh, the one the the biggest topic, uh, well, you need to make sure that you are not uh, taken on the wrong side of possible, uh, possible discussions. Um, then there is another one that is related to client demand. And obviously, uh, the financial sector is, is very keen on addressing client demand. Uh, and I think, the, I mean, these first two are clearly the one that, that gets people starting. But uh, what, what we need to have this engagement uh, sustained over time is for uh, the third one to be completely, um, completely taken on board, that is the, the economics of climate change. Uh, it is not something that is just a reputation, uh, about reputation. It is not something that is about what your clients want and don't want. It is something that is happening, and it is something that you can't ignore, uh, and you need to, 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 to take on board. Uh, and in, in, in that respect, things are starting to, to change a bit. Um, the fact that, as uh, Minister Boland was remembering everybody today, uh, climate change is uh, becoming always more urgent and we're starting to see it uh, very clearly uh, is something that is, that is, um, that is key. But it, I think it's not enough. And the fact that, uh, that people are uh, able to speak out uh, the, the, the carnet speeches, uh, the fact that some investors and some bankers are starting to, to say, I think we can do something with that, and here is how I'm addressing the question, is something that is, that is of value. And because that's, uh, that kind of speeches is also a way of translating this intuition into something that, that definitely gets uh, the people's attention in the financial, in the financial um, uh, sector. So... Things are changing, but we really need to, to get to a point where everybody has a clearer understanding of what is at stake and the various options and, and ways uh, uh, forward. And I'm, I'm very much looking at the uh, CMU as an opportunity to, to bring a comprehensive agenda um, in, 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 that, in that, bring forward a comprehensive agenda in, the, in that space uh, and uh, looking for further and deeper uh, progress. Great. I'm going to jump for a new investor view from uh, Tatiana now. 
Um, Jean mentioned it's about having information but also using information. Um, can you tell us a bit about how Hermes looks at ESG risk um, and integrates that into its decision making? And I think linked to that, one of the, the challenges for the Commission, I think Michelle may correct me later, is the sheer breadth of the sustainable finance agenda. But it, it strikes me a lot of this is around um, managing ESG risk through better governance and information. Um, if so, what does that mean potentially for the, for the expert group that will be set up? Hi, everyone. I'm with Hermes Investment Management. We are an institutional investors own and working with pension funds in the UK. We see ourselves as a big institutional investor in the UK. We are probably relatively small compared to our Nordic uh, colleagues. But mainly the way we see ourselves is we define ourselves as a, as a responsible investor. And I think it's, it's an important point to, to start the discussion here. Because the, the starting point of how we assess how to integrate ESG and into the way that we work is from the perspective of fiduciary duty. What is our duty towards our pensioners to comply with the law and to manage their money in an appropriate way? And I think what we are seeing very much in terms of the, the green finance discussion, and I would uh, very much support the position of Philippe that it's about climate, but it's also about financing the sustainable development goals, is that we are now, as investors, under fiduciary duty to deliver not only what we see as simple returns in terms of the money that our pensioners will get, but also what we like to call in home is holistic returns, i.e. enable them to live in a society and in an economy where that pension will allow them to have a good quality of life. And obviously we are investing their monies to finance the real economy for, of the future. So I think that's a really important point in terms of why we are doing that. Of course, it's also because we believe that in the long term, those risks are real, and therefore there will be an impact to financial performance if we are not taking them into account, and that leads us about making informed decisions. So the way we have been going at it in, in Hermes is three ways, mainly. The first one is through integrating ESG and risk assessment into our investment process, i.e. being aware of the risk and integrating them into our investment decision-making processes. I see that as very much this notion of making an informed decision for which, admittedly, you need to have the appropriate data and knowledge. The second element which we do, which we feel it's a fundamental part of what we do, is engagement. So we engage with the company that we invest in, and we have consistently been doing that ever since we were created 30 years ago, in order to work with our investors actively to deliver the performance that we expect from them, from a financial perspective and also from an environmental and social perspective. One point there which is really important is that we have done a number of analysis on the data uh, from those engagement and the performance. And one of the points that come out systematically in the last four years in our survey is that governance is one of the key elements that one needs to measure. Governments, good governments deliver, there is a correlation between good governments and positive financial returns. But what we also see is that there is a correlation between good governments and good social and environmental performance. So I think that's one of the elements to keep in mind. Le linking it to our fiduciary duty, I think the importance of stewardship codes should not be underestimated. And I'll come to that in, in a second a bit later. 
And finally, I'll, bring, I'll come along with you again on the point of collaboration. Advocacy is a very key part of what we do. We believe that we are at the point where we need to challenge the way the financial system is working or not. And one of the key elements of that is to have a better understanding of risk, both in terms of we are looking at risk from probably an out-of-date perspective in many ways, and also from the perspective of how we measure performance. We are very much challenging the notion of benchmarks and the way they are defined today, which stuck institutional investors into much shorter terms than what we ideally would like to see, uh, to have the ability to do. So this leads me very much to what we see are the great opportunity of the capital markets union, which we very much welcome being an institution investors. We very much welcome the discussion which is going on on how there could be greater institution money going and invest, investment money going into infrastructure and other. And we have, um, I would say, five points to put forward. The first is consistency in terms of the policies and the scopes that we were mentioned. And I will start probably with the, the less uh, obvious that we had in discussion, but it's enabling investors to invest in those infrastructure uh, or green investment. And the first will have to do with Solvency II and the Capital Requirements Directive, i.e. the transposition of Basel III, in terms of what are the requirements that enable institutional investors to invest in, especially large-scale uh, green finance. And there's been some very good progress. In particular, we were very pleased with the work done on the institutional occupational retirement pension and the clear um, reference to what is the equivalent of the fiduciary duty in terms of the prudent person law. So now we are in a position where pension funds have to follow fiduciary duty in particular to climate change risk. And there is this notion of having your own risk assessment, which again requires to have climate risk embedded in it. And we see that as good examples of what could be done in terms of consistency. Obviously, we also would like to see them linked to the, the environmental and social priorities, and in particular climate change. So whether it is the 2030 targets, whether it is the energy union, I think consistency is crucial, the infrastructure investment plan in order to send that signal that we are all investing in the right direction. The second one, which again, you're going to hear it again and again, but it's about transparency. So disclosure is going to be crucial to that. And I very much like in the discussion that we're hearing here that it's not about more data, but it's about relevant knowledge. And I think that's going to be a distinction that we're very much hoping to hear from the Financial Stability Board report uh, being made to say what we need is to be able to make an informed decision. I always uh, laugh at my colleagues saying you are paid a lot of money to make an assessment of long-term trends. So what my role is is to provide you with relevant information to enable you to make that. So we've done great progress in terms of carbon footprint, even though we're still in the very early stages. But where we need to go, it's really towards carbon risk management, stress testing, and in that sense, we do welcome Article 173 in France, which I think is quite forward-looking uh, from, from that angle. I think the collaboration there is going to be crucial because no one really knows how to do a stress testing of a number of companies. And what we see when we do analysis of carbon footprints is if you look at your carbon today, first you're looking at a picture today. Uh, if you look at your reserve, very few sectors have reserves. And we are going to have 
we see our role not as divesting from companies who have a high carbon footprint, but as engaging with those companies to enable them to transition towards a low carbon economy. So your high carbon footprint today might not be a proper indicator of where you are going as a, as a company. We also, and I'd like to emphasize that, we would hope that the Financial Stability Board and therefore the Commission afterwards also require disclosure from investors, not just from companies, because we think we will need that transparency in the market. The other point which was made, again, is the, the terms, the, the tragedy of the horizons. We need to unlock this... We are trapped into the short-termism of policy requirements, even fiduciary duty really doesn't take you very far when you want to invest in the long term. And I think that is going to be a very important question that needs to be, and will have in my way, in my view, to be led by the, the policy requirements, because it's very difficult to unlock that otherwise. On a, on a positive note, we have seen more and more pension funds who are asking questions about uh, how benchmark could or could not be adjusted. But it's a very shy industry. It's a very risk-averse industry, so it's probably not going to be uh, where it all starts. But we do see some good progress, as I mentioned, with Solvency 3 and others, which could enable that to happen. And the final one is really this notion of credibility. I very much I am with Philippe on the high risk at the moment in terms of green finance being seen as this major greenwashing uh, exercise. And the credibility that will come from I would say consistent standards. We're not asking for one standard that will resolve it all. I think that's, that's probably a mistaken way of looking at it. But definitely having clarification in terms of definition, in terms of processes, and not just in terms of disclosure, but stress testing. And here I'd like to bring one point because it hasn't been made here is we do a lot of work, Ingrid and I as well, on the um, real estate and SMEs and in, and in industry side of green investment, which is very difficult because it tends to be much smaller scale. And there's going to be a lot of credibility that will have to be gained by enabling an aggregation and an understanding of risk that makes those type of green investments palatable uh, for the people that Philippe and I are working uh, for. And I think that's really, it's, it's going to have to be built on credibility and, and standards across the industry. And finally, it's going to be about bringing all actors into the industry. So credit, rate, credit rating are only just waking up uh, to this. And I think the, the credibility and the standards on how they start rating the risk is really important. And so they need to be brought on board just as much as uh, all the others. So, so to finish uh, on this, I think the, the Commission has a great opportunity here with the Capital Markets Union to really send a strong signal to investors and to be very clear about the investment objectives that we should be uh, looking at. And from what you probably have heard, we all have a clear idea of what should be in there. So I think it's now about political commitment to push this forward. And I'm very much looking forward to your views and to your help in the next six months to push this forward when the real decisions are going to be taken through the Parliament and the Council, because I think there's going to be a pressure which will have to be uh, applied uh, in order to get what we think is necessary to promote a credible green finance going forward. Thank you. Um, jumping to you, Dirk. Um, Bruegel wrote one of the first papers on a green capital markets union, and I know you've got clear views on some of the priorities there. Do you want to talk to us a bit about them? Uh, thank you, Ingrid. Um, 
um, if we think of markets, then um, they tend to, uh, to work at best bottom-up. And I think we've seen uh, from the earlier presentations that there are huge investment needs. It's not only about new projects, but just existing projects doing in a new way. And in that sense, so there is a lot of money needed. On the other side, uh, and I pick up from uh, Tatiana, uh, I'm from the Netherlands, the, the country of the big pension funds, and there is really a lot of invest, investor demand for, uh, for this new uh, kind of project uh, where these things are taken into account. And that is really, they even cannot find a project. So on both sides, there is a big potential. And the challenge is to let these meet without heavy-handed regulation and big things and which lead to delays. So um, I would take as a priority area the green bonds that's really emerging. Um, and uh, so if we get more in bonds, uh, and, and for clarification, the big institutional investors put far more in bonds because it matches their liabilities than in equity because we always think about equity, but the bond market is the fast uh, investment uh, part. And the key thing is to get this going. And we heard already a few things and, uh, about greenwashing and that kind of thing. So we, the, the need for consistent standards is large because basically that's basically a government policy or a policy of the industry enabling uh, the investment needs and the investment supply to meet. So it is an enabling policy rather than a guiding policy. And if we can do that quickly, uh, then you, you, we can make progress. So I think uh, what we've heard so far about disclosure, uh, I think everybody agrees at this table, that's number one, because without disclosure you don't know what is happening. And the second thing is we really need to to uh, speak the same language, that we can compare it, that it's consistent, not identical, because it can be different context. And there, the role of standards is extremely important, because then you can see what is living up to this standard of uh, what are cream projects, what not. Then, um, then uh, you, you, you get the integrity of the market, because that is very important. Because if you get a few scandals that you invest in green bonds, but they don't appear to be green bonds, then you're back at zero and, and the market will be destroyed. So if we get these standards going, um, and it is, uh, I think the, the associations in the markets, maybe under the guidance of the European Commission, can come uh, to these standards, that would help uh, to promote these markets. Great, thanks, Dirk. I'm going to jump to Michelle before opening the floor to, to questions. Um, Michelle, it's a broad and wide agenda. Um, there are lots of overlaps between green and sustainable finance, but some synergies as well. How are you thinking about the tension between these agendas? And just linked to that, what seems to be emerging from the conversation is we may not necessarily be talking about new legislation at a European level, but enforcement of legislation that already exists. Have you got a few comments for us on, on those areas? Uh, yes, uh, thank you for the invitation. It's a very interesting subject. Um, I would like to say that uh, for the first question, uh, the Commission is very committed to move the, uh, the market economy towards a more sustainable direction. 
Um, in the long run, we think that this will help uh, make our market more competitive, resilient, create new jobs, and uh, cre uh, create more social cohesion. Of course, uh, when we talk about uh, uh, sustainable finance, uh, we mean it, it means different things to different people. Uh, it, to some, it means that uh, sustainable finance uh, is, is including in the investment decisions uh, ESG, the environmental and social and governance factors. Um, it's very important. All three factors uh, are, are comp components are very important. But often I, I notice that the discussion uh, when we talk about sustainable finance, it, it slowly shifts to green finance, to the environmental aspect. Whether this is because we have, for the moment, the, the climate change uh, objective or uh, Objectives, or is it uh, because it's more easy to measure? Is it we have the metrics there? There's a lot of work going on at the moment at the international level. There's a G20 Green Finance Study Group. We have uh, uh, country initiatives working on green finance. Uh, that is without belittling the importance of the SNG elements, components of the ESG. Uh, because, of course, uh, if you improve green finance, you also have an impact on the social inclusion, social cohesion, and governance. It could include better governance in terms of fiduciary duties. So, um, for the moment, we're, the Commission is still reflecting uh, on whether, how to approach this. Uh, again, any success in a component, uh, specifically on the green finance, could be um, could pave the way. I think Philippe mentioned earlier uh, into the other components of FSG could help um, more um, to advance more in the other components. Uh, so I, the Commission will come up now with a formal decision in the uh, when it sets up uh, the mandate of the, this expert group, uh, which will be sometime at the end of this month or early November. So that's answering the first question. And now the, the second question is whether we're talking about legislation and enforcement. Well, um, again, we are asking this expert group that was announced in the communication of the CMU, Accelerating Reform of September, uh, to look into possible uh, measures uh, of how the EU can create uh, overarching, comprehensive, uh, approach on sustainable finance. Uh, we already do have some elements, some legislation, uh, the non-financial reporting, the Europe 2 that is coming out, uh, will be formally adopted uh, in a, a few months, um, and the CMU already uh, focuses on sustainable finance. Uh, the, the question now is, we want to make a, a more comprehensive uh, approach to this, and this without being able to uh, prejudge the outcome of this expert group, uh, it could be uh, revisions of legislation, it could be um, new legislation, but it could be better enforcement or best practices. Uh, we will have to wait and see what the expert group comes up with and how this will be translated into co final uh, commission decision. Thanks. Thank you. Right, we have 10 minutes left. Um, hopefully we've got a few questions um, from the floor. 
and a microphone going around. So who would like to go with the first question? So I'm going to try to look for new faces. There's a lady over there with the blonde hair. And then we'll take this gentleman here and another new face here. Hi, uh, Alina Rolf from BRI. So I wanted to uh, get a sense from the panel on um, how do we measure the impact of the strategy. And I work with the reporting and assessment team at BRI, so obviously the next question would be also what sort of data we'd be collecting to, to measure that as well. Thanks. Uh, this gentleman. Uh, Richard Middleton from, <coughs> from AFME. Um, yeah, we're very encouraged by the Commission's communications from uh, about a month ago on accelerating reform, but also the one that focused on the FC. And this sounds like a great idea to put more, more firepower into that and to link it more to sustainable goals. Um, one thing I was just thinking about, somebody else mentioned it's important to identify a pipeline of appropriate projects. I wasn't quite sure in, in terms of scaling up, how, how does the FC machinery work there for identifying all these extra projects which, uh, for which the money is going to be um, available. Thank you. Victor Van Horn from Umbrophy. And a question, a very interesting panel. Um, it seems that sustainable finance, it's all about capital allocation and a proper interaction with companies and markets uh, allocating the capital properly. Um, maybe a question more directed to the asset managers on the panel. Uh, we see that one of the fastest growing asset classes is uh, passive investments, where obviously there's l obviously less of an active role for the asset manager, maybe slightly more reliance on the benchmark providers who might provide green benchmarks. How do you see that uh, evolution in the uh, sustainable finance debate? Thank you. Okay, so I have a question on impact, um, the FC and where the projects will come from and evolution of the sector. So um, I'm not, who, who would like to take the one on impact of the strategy? I feel it may fall to you, Michelle. And it may be an impossible question at this stage. <laughs> Uh, actually, we, st uh, we still are working on the preliminary stages of establishing the strategy, so uh, it will be difficult to answer this. Sounds like come back in a couple of months' time. Yes. <laughs> it may not be an answer, but uh, two, two things I thought about, uh, about impact. Um, I think it's very important to, to for... Um, typically an asset manager or an institutional investor to think about its impact, but I would caution uh, around two, two issues. The first one is to uh, somehow blur the lines between uh, the, the ultimate mandate of, the, uh, of the, uh, the asset manager or the institutional investor and, and start to arbitrage between, between the two. And I think that uh, everybody's very conscious of that, that's, that boils down in some jurisdiction, in some, in some cases, to the fiduciary duty debate. But it's, it's very, um, what, what is tricky is to ensure that we are really aligning the, aligning the, the two. The second one, and, and the reason why I'm quite optimistic on that, is that uh, basically we must see finance in that, uh, in that space, not as something that, it, that would ensure that uh, we will deliver on things we can't deliver or we are we are collectively unable to deliver through climate policies. I think finance is, in that, in that respect, a, a 
a great amplifier of the policy signal. So it's uh, it's by um, basically uh, you doing your job that that you are making uh, the the climate policies uh, stronger and, and and more efficient. And that's uh, that's where I see this very great potential for reconciliation between the between the two. Thank you. Um, who wants to take the F? Who wants to take the FC question? Michelle. Um, yes. Okay. In terms of identifying sustainable project uh, projects, I think um, uh, there's already uh, s some work, uh, some projects that have been identified as more sustainable compared to others, and the intention would be to further um, allocate more resources uh, related to sustainable, uh, which is could be re related to renewable energy, more efficient projects. I think I don't know if that answers your question. It's difficult to answer the, the precise, uh, but the, the intention is that work is ongoing to increase this amount. You can identify, I'm not sure if you can really quantify the I think that's the EIB's job. I, I think the interesting thing about FC as well is the technical assistant component, technical assistance component. To, so looking at difficult project development around things like energy efficiency and so on. So, um, Philippe, Just, maybe I wanted to jump in on two questions. Uh, first, come back to the to the impact one. Uh, measuring impact is of course absolutely key. Uh, I mean we have. Uh, we have been, uh, I mean, all the asset management industry, we have been managing uh, socially responsible funds for decades without measuring any impact, without uh, just explaining what, uh, what was uh, the, the result, the outcome of what we uh, were doing. So now we are just changing the of, uh, paradigm on that, and that um, in, impact measurement is absolutely key. Sometimes, I mean, for, as far as uh, for carbon, maybe it's, rather easy, even if there are a lot of different methodologies and uh, the divide is in the details, but for other kind of report, uh, of uh, I mean, the criteria, it will be, it will be more, more, uh, more difficult than, uh, than, uh, than for carbon. Just uh, I wanted to mention that uh, in um, um, collaborative work that we have done with uh, Cambridge University and Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership over the last three years, we have worked with uh, 12 uh, big asset owners and asset managers, and one of the work work streams uh, was about uh, impact reporting. And what we uh, have done is we have, um, we have started from the SDGs, from the Sustainable Development Goals, and see how we can just translate the Sustainable Development Goals into uh, criteria, into investment objectives. And uh, we have published a report on that, so uh, you, I can, uh, you can have a look, uh, uh, have a look at it. And uh, I mean, I'm happy to discuss uh, any time. Uh, second, uh, maybe s second part, uh, uh, second answer about, about uh, maybe you can uh, maybe jump uh, as well on it. Um, it's about uh, passive investment. Uh, of course, I mean, passive investment is a very uh, big problem, is a big issue because, I mean, uh, uh, but I mean, much more than passive, the fact is that uh, it's passive uh, and it's, uh, and it's about, and it's passive, um, I mean, uh, based on cap-weighted cap indices, I mean, on uh, traditional cap-weighted indices. That's, that's the, 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 the base of the problem. Because what what we do in we uh, when, when we do pass, passive investment, when we uh, track 
this kind of uh, index is that we copy paste the world as it is today exactly uh, instead of investing in the, in the companies and in the world that we want to uh, to happen in the future so this is exactly uh, the opposite of, of what, we, what we would like to do a way maybe to uh, uh, tackle this uh, issue uh, is uh, uh, is to create new kind of indices because uh, the, one of the objectives of the, 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 the investors who use passive investment is to reduce their, their, the, the cost of investment. And I mean, that's fair enough. We can understand that. We, maybe you, you don't want to pay the, the fee of an active management when you manage a lot, a lot of uh, hundreds of billions. Uh, but then you have to choose carefully the index you are tracking. And so uh, we, we are very in favor of the development of new kind of indices. Uh, low carbon indices, uh, I mean uh, ESG indices, and uh, and so on. With which could, this, this could be an uh, an option. Just just bouncing on that, I think I agree that we see also that as a as a big problem, um, mainly because we also believe that the indices are problematic, and therefore you are not, as I said earlier on, you you are not understanding and integrating the risk in the way that we should, according to to us. I think the, there's, we need to recognize that it's a very heterogeneous market, the, the investment market. And so we're going to have to take what is good from various elements and push for more ambitious uh, action from others. So in terms of the, the passive investment, indeed, now you, you do have more and more low-carbon funds which are coming up, which are kind of excluding energy funds. Um, put it simply. And so it is one way too, and we see a number of uh, Danish and Swedish investors who say as part of our strategy we're going to have a proportion which are going to be low carbon uh, passive funds. What we think it's also very, very important is that by doing that you are not helping in the transition to the low carbon economy in terms of pushing uh, for new, for the opportunity side of the equation. What we also see, it's really crucial in the uh, going to your notion of how do you measure impact is what I, I started with in terms of we have found that more engagement with the corporates and working with the corporate sectors to help them understand what information we need is probably the way forward because indeed we haven't really measured it but there was this notion that you can't really ask that information is not relevant from corporates. And so I think we need to work a lot on the fiduciary duty and on the corporate disclosure to enable that information and that knowledge to be uh, available in order to move to, to that next step. And I think this point about the heterogeneity of the market leads me to uh, maybe a point to Michel about the expert group. I think it's going to be quite important that it's well represented in terms of the diversity uh, which is uh, present in the investment market to ensure that all different uh, actors are included. In terms of indices, I think the S&P, MSCI and others uh, have started to grasp, but there are still questions about some of the indices, especially in positive impact, which even more than green finance is becoming a bit of the holy grail, so everybody comes out with some kind of definition, and I think we probably need to work more slowly to make the data available. But I would think that that's really important is to have those type of factors on board as well as the investors, so the rating agencies, and uh, in order to capture uh, the broad range of investment solutions which are available. Dirk, and then I think we'll have to wrap it up. Just to pick up further on this issue of passive investment, I fully agree with Philip and Tatiana that we need these low carbon indices. 
Because basically investing in the market indices is like a circular argument. Uh, everybody invests in the market index and then the portfolio theory circle is round. To get out of that, we need to develop new indices uh, like the low carbon. And then what we said today about standards for green bonds is exactly true for these low carbon indices, that we need a process that we can really trust these indices to be uh, that the integrity uh, and how they are composed. Uh, that's very important, but once we get there, they can serve as an important benchmark uh, also for the passive investors. Great, so I'm going to try and um, pull out some key points from today. Um, I think generally uh, the Capital Markets Union refresh and the expert group is very much welcomed and seen as necessary. Um, that this is seen as about managing risk, but also opportunities in, in the new sustainable economy. A lot of it is about improving governance of capital markets, and so the Capital Markets Union initiative feels like the right place for it to happen, but there are no easy answers, and we'll need to see governments and regulators and civil society working together. Standards will bring many benefits, so this is about um, dealing with the integrated nature of financial markets. Um, and the fact that we need standardisation to allow comparability and to aggregate information in a useful decision-useful way. So the FSB task force um, announcements will seem like a natural place and a next step for the capital markets um, union to, to pick this up from. So, um, well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for our speakers. I just wanted to do one little advert before we go. Um, over the last 10 months, E3G has been working with a number of um, NGOs and think tanks and progressive investors around what the key elements of a plan for sustainable finance in Europe could look like. So this is very timely. Um, that, that our report is, is just going to be coming out. So we have some trailer executive summaries. If anyone's interested, you can pick those up. Um, but with that, it just remains for me to ask you to join me to thank our speakers in the usual way for a very thought-provoking discussion. Thank you.